0: We turn our Bibles to Hebrews in chapter 1, Hebrews and chapter 1. <clears throat> and our study today is in verses 4 to 14, uh, looking together at Jesus superior to the angels. In our last study, we thought of Jesus superior to, most, uh, to, to the prophets, and this study is Jesus superior to the angels. Brazil is then ranked number one in the world. Brazil is ranked above Belgium and Argentina and France and then England. Experts sponsored by Coca-Cola, of course, have looked at the statistics and placed Brazil first. They use a system called ELO, which is RN equals RO plus K times W minus WE. We're speaking, of course, of the World Cup football, which begins this week in Qatar. The ranking of the 32 teams has been done and is important. Brazil is number one. The book of Hebrews is continuing its theme of ranking, detailing the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ above all others. And as we come to the second section in the book of Hebrews, the writer explores the ranking of angels. And the obvious question that you are asking is, why angels? We understand clearly the importance of Jesus being superior to the prophets, as argued in verses 1 to 3, because they were pillars of Judaism. We will easily understand the argument in chapter 3 that Jesus is superior to Moses because he was an outstanding prophet. But perhaps it is more difficult for us to understand why the writer argues that Jesus is superior to the angels in chapters 2 and 3. Now we are not the first people to have asked this question if indeed it is a question that you have been asking. My old elder, when I was a teenager, used to say that when he turned to commentaries to get help about a matter that he was scratching his head over, he found that they also were scratching their heads over that matter. And this is the case with this question. Some commentators answer it by claiming the readers were influenced by the Dead Sea sect a view which believed that a kingly messiah would come, but that kingly messiah would be subject to the archangel Michael. Others think that the writer was opposing Gnostic tendencies which held to the hierarchy of angels and that Jesus himself was a created being. Others think the readers were influenced by Ebionite Christology, which taught that Jesus was an angel and that the writer is correcting their error. But I think the best, and others think as well, the best answer to the question is found in the exalted place given to angels in the Old Testament. Angels in the Old Testament played important roles in the history of God's people. Two angels came to Abraham, didn't they? And then to Lot. One angel helped Elijah. One angel wrestled with Jacob. An angel called Gideon. An angel announced Samson's birth. An angel silenced the mouth of the lions in Daniel's den. And besides those historical instances, there is the great promise in Psalm 91 verse 11 that God... Will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And from this raft of instances of the exalted role of angels, great deference was paid to them by the Jews. R.C. Gleason describes the view Judaism had of angels in the first century as an over inflated valuation of angels and thus it is, it was important to show that Jesus is superior not only to the prophets, not only to Moses but also to the angels. And The writer takes his time to do this in chapter 1 and also in chapter 2. But this point is not just important for those readers in the 60s AD, but also for us. Because we too can be distracted from the glory of Jesus. At every communion season we all admit that we have not been as near to Jesus, as focused on Jesus, as dedicated to Jesus as we should be and want to be. Other things have taken over in our life. Business and family soak up our time and attention and we've taken our mind off Jesus. But secondly, like these readers, sometimes parts of the Bible can be given an over-inflated place in our hearts and minds. Some Christians and scholars have got sidetracked in remote areas of biblical scholarship, especially in the area of eschatology. They have spent their lifetime asking, what do the ten toes on Daniel's image really mean? Or what is the true meaning of the mark of the beast in Revelation? And they've taken their eye off Jesus. And thirdly, the relevance of this subject is that our society is fascinated by angelology and the supernatural. Recent publications sold by Waterstone's bookseller such as the title Unlock the Secrets to Connecting with Your Guardian Angel are extremely popular. But people in our society are not so fascinated with Jesus. Nativity plays are an insight into where our society is. There will be great fascination with the angel, but a dismissive attitude to the weak and humble baby in the manger. And so here, in Hebrews 1 today, in our 2022 year, is a corrective to our lives, to our society to our season the supremacy of Jesus to angels to make his point to prove his point that Jesus is superior to these angelic beings the author comes to the Bible he cites seven Old Testament scriptures in verses 5 to 14 to support his claim these seven scriptures fall Into three groups, two groups of three, and then one quotation in the last group. And in each group, a contrast is made between Jesus and the angels. His points are Jesus is Son, Jesus is Sovereign, Jesus is Seated. Firstly, Jesus is Son, verses 4 to 6. The first two quotations in this section are found in verses 4 to 6 and contain the title, Son, applied to Jesus. The first quote is from Psalm 2. The other is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the point being made in both of these quotations is that Jesus is not a created being, but the eternal Son of God. The quote from Psalm 2 verse 7 reads, You are my Son. In the psalm, God is addressing another person, and the New Testament identifies that person as Jesus. For example, in a prayer by the apostles in Acts chapter 4, they quote from Psalm 2 as they remember the opposition of Jews and Romans to Jesus. In contrast to the hatred of the nations which crucified Jesus, the apostles cite this psalm, the words of God to him. You are my son." This point is made in verse 5 of chapter 1. God never called any of the angels son. To which of the angels he writes did God ever say you are my son? But he called Jesus son. Jesus is superior to the angels. Perhaps you want to know about the second half of this verse, which is not the main pertinent point, but perhaps it interests you, it troubles you, it keeps you awake at night. We'll give a moment to try and explain in it, today I have begotten you. It's not an easy part of the verse to explain. What makes it difficult is its varied New Testament usage. The phrase is applied in some places to the resurrection of Jesus, Romans 1, 4, for example, to the exaltation of Jesus in chapter 5, verse 5 of Hebrews. In those cases, the reference is to the coronation of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus as Lord and mediator and King, which connects with the original meaning of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, at his coronation... The king of Israel became, in a real sense, a meaningful sense, the son of God. He was disciplined by God and upheld by God and anointed by God. He was God's son, the king of Israel, in a real sense. But in the fullest sense, the most exalted sense, Jesus is God's son. Older theologians have seen the reference to today to be the eternal generation of the Son. Not to his mediatorial Sonship expressed in his resurrection and exaltation, but to his divine and eternal Sonship. So the phrase has been referred both to the eternal divine Sonship of Jesus and also to his exaltation as the mediator and perhaps it's best for us to merge these two views to see jesus eternal divine sonship expressed in his resurrection and his ascension into heaven you are my son is the main point you are my son something he never said to the angels the second quote is from second samuel 7:14 I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Once more the title son is used. The original reference is to the son of David, weakly fulfilled in Solomon. But as David McWilliam claims, the language bursts its banks and spills forward into the future. The writer sees an elevated fulfillment of this promise to David in Jesus. The eternal, divine, Son of God. He shall be to me a son. The King of Israel would, as we said, have a special relationship with God. But this promise is supremely fulfilled in Jesus. Son of David. Son of God. He is Son in this double sense. As royal Son of David. But also as eternal Son of God. But in contrast to Jesus, being called son in these two Old Testament places, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 is what God says to the angels. Negatively, the writer observes, God doesn't say to them, you are my son. Positively, what he does say about them in verse 6 is, let all God's angels Worship him. Exalted though the angels are in their powers, in their role, in their place of standing before God in heaven, they're on a very different level to that of Jesus. Verse 6 combines two verses from the Old Testament, Psalm 97 verse 7 and Deuteronomy 32 verse 43, both of which command angels To worship him. Elevated. Though angels are. They worship. The son of God. The phrase in verse 6. Springs into the world. Something refers to Jesus. Second coming. And the angelic accompaniment of Jesus. When he returns. In power and glory but others, I think, are more accurate and right when they interpreted of Jesus' first coming. And so the command was obeyed outside Bethlehem before the watching eyes of the shepherds as the heavenly host came with praise and thanksgiving as Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Here, here, is the first area of supremacy of Jesus above the angels. He his son. And they must worship him. The late queen had the desire that Jesus would return during her reign so that she could lay down her crown at his feet. So lofty angels... Worship him. And we are to join them in this. Jesus is son. His second argument is Jesus is sovereign in verses 7 to 12. And again, he has three quotations. He shifts round the contrast this time. He puts the angels first and then Jesus second. What a preacher uh, this writer to the Hebrews is. The angels then, first of all, what are they? In verse 7 we read from an Old Testament description in Psalm that we sung. 104 verse 4, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In this quotation the angels are described as servants. The common use of Hebrew parallelism, that one line parallels the other, indicates that angels in the first line are the ministers in the second line. But what is it like to be an angel, you might ask? What is it like to be a heavenly servant of God? The writer helps us there by using two metaphors. Two pictures to answer that question and convey to us some idea of being an angel. It's like wind. It's like lightning, he says. The general idea of these metaphors is that they are controlled by God. The wind and the lightning. As winds and lightning happen by God's command, so angels exist and act At God's command. More specifically, the wind is unseen and moves swiftly, so, angels are spirits who are unseen and move quickly to carry out the orders of God. The lightning conveys the idea of brightness and burning heat and passion as these angelic beings. Love and are devoted to God as they stand in His presence as worshippers of Him. Angels are servants, obeying the commands of God like wind and like lightning. In contrast to this, He quotes from Psalm 45 Jesus is God. Jesus is on the throne Jesus is sovereign John Brown comments Jesus' place is on the throne angels' place is before the throne the psalm describes as we sung it today a a number of characteristics of Jesus' reign his scepter is a scepter of uprightness His heart is a heart which loves righteousness. Here is a ruler (laughs) rare in in our time, in in our age, in, in any age, who is upright, who is righteous. But it's the everlasting nature of his reign that is emphasized from the psalm. His throne is forever and ever. He's addressed by God. As God, your throne, O God. God the Father says to his Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In the second psalm, quoted in this section, Psalm 102, this idea of the, the prolonged, everlasting nature of the throne of Jesus is brought out. The heavens will pass away. The earth will be rolled up, the psalm says, but your years will have no end. He sits as sovereign forever while angels serve the throne of heaven. Jesus is sovereign. All kinds of reports about the demands of King Charles on his staff are emerging How much toothpaste is to be put on his toothbrush, and his shoelaces to be pressed with an iron daily. But after all, he is king, and they are his servants. And Jesus is king, and the angels are his servants. Thirdly, Jesus is seated, verses 13 and 14. Only one quotation from the Old Testament is mentioned in this closing section, but it's the most used quotation from the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 110, verse 1, referred to already in verse 3. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. For your feet. David McWilliams comments in this verse that David, as a prophet, was enabled to see prophetically into heaven itself and to hear the voice of God invite Jesus to sit down with him in his throne. The reference to the right hand of God indicates the unique sonship and full divine nature of Jesus. Then describing the exaltation of Jesus, the apostles often refer to this psalm for Peter 3, 21 and 22, for example. Jesus is gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels being subjected to him. In contrast to this, in verse 14, Angels are sent out as the Lord's messengers. Constantly angels leave the throne, the right hand of God, like message boys, to fulfill missions for those seated on the throne. Sometimes their mission to the church is to take people out of prison, as Peter in Acts 12. Sometimes they're sent out to accompany believers at the very moment of death and to assist their soul on the journey from earth to heaven, as Luke sixteen twenty two suggests. You remember John Bunyan describing this ministry of angels to believers in Pilgrim's Progress as Pilgrim and Hopeful enter the river of death. On the other side of the river, they are met by two shining ones who take them into the celestial city. David McWilliams comments on the ministry of angels. Who knows. Along the way of the Christian life. How God might choose to use his angels in our lives. Surely it is a marvel to contemplate. Though we are made lower than the angels. Though they are greater in power than us. Though they dwell in the immediate presence of God. And do not sin. Yet They are sent, verse 14 says, from heaven to serve us and minister to us. But in contrast to that, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. All rise is the command given to a company of people to respect the entrance of a queen or a king. No one remains seated in the presence of arriving royalty. But Jesus remains seated in the presence of God, as Son, as divine, as equal. But angels stand and serve. Jesus is Son. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is seated. As we reflect on this wonderful chapter, let us put Jesus first in our lives. He's exalted far above all created things as eternal Son of God. Let us give him the place he deserves in our lives which God the Father has given to him. We know the acronym on joy, Jesus, others, you. It's a good model, a model we approve of, but rarely manage to keep. Often it's because we're so busy. We have bills to pay, a mortgage to meet, ageing parents to look after, children to bring up. We know Jesus is the greatest, but we are so busy and tired that we don't get time to enjoy or express his greatness. That's nearly excusable. But what isn't excusable is being dazzled by other things and not by Jesus. Being thrilled, excited, can't stop talking about other things but not about the sheer wonder of Jesus. Young people, is it your academic achievements or sports team that thrills you? Parents, is it your children's success? Or your newly built home that excites you? It's fine to get thrilled about those things. But not when we get excited about those things. And not about Jesus. For some of us, we are entering a challenging period in our Christian lives the football world cup it will dominate the news the TV and general conversation for the next month some of us will get engrossed in the thrills and spills of the competition especially if England go out early and our challenge will be to be more enthusiastic about Jesus our prayer life than about the football this writer is thrilled about Jesus let us love our book of Psalms more I'm more and more convinced that what the church needs is not more songs to sing in praise not more modern songs to be written but a better understanding of the inspired songs that we already have Look at how this chapter uses psalms to show to us Jesus. Psalms that we would not usually connect with Jesus. The writer finds Jesus in Psalm 97, Psalm 102, wonderfully opened up here for us, layers to them that exist that the reader, unenlightened by the Spirit of God, will never see. And the Christian who dismisses the Psalter as an Old Testament book from which we all need to move on from doesn't want to see. But in contrast to these positions, we're to learn from this author, to offer the prayer over our open Psalter. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in its words. And lastly, let us talk about angels. Let us all have a biblically balanced view about angels. In the Christian church there are two extremes. Some people never mention angels, other people mention them a lot. The biblical position is that it does mention angels. 114 is one of the key verses about the present ministry of angels in the church. But in the Bible, angels never take away the glory or attention that is due to Jesus. Let's be aware of them. Perhaps it may surprise you to learn that within the Reformed tradition, a tradition committed to Scripture and not given to excesses, we encounter the ongoing ministry of angels. Angels. For example, in the life of Samuel Rutherford, we read of a white bony man who lifted him from a well. In the life of John G. Payton, a reformed Presbyterian, we read of savages seeing John G. Payton surrounded by white clothed persons which prevented them from killing him. Let's be able to hold a conversation about angels in our work canteen. And maybe over the next month, we could initiate conversations with colleagues and friends about angels as the Christmas story is told. But let us do it as the writer does here, only and ever as a means to talk about the greatness of Jesus.